From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. League Alert has been fighting to protect immigrants' rights for nearly three decades. And he's been arguably the busiest person at the ACLU since President Trump took office. In his role as deputy director of the ACLU's Immigrants' Rights Project, Lee has sued the government over the Muslim ban, family separation, and various attacks on asylum. Now, he's set to argue a case before the Supreme Court to ensure that asylum seekers have their day in court. He's joining us today to break down this historic case and tell us what it's like to be on the front lines of the immigration battles. Lee, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. So as I said, you've been a tireless advocate for immigrants' rights, and this battle has increased exponentially since Trump took office. So I guess the first question is, are you getting sleep? How are you taking care of yourself? Um, I think I've moved recently from tireless to tired. <laughs> um, yeah, it's been a long three years, but I think everyone at the ACLU and every, all the other NGOs and people who are working on these issues are working hard. I think what keeps all of us going is when we see the clients. You know, there's really no way you can say I'm too tired to keep going when you see their struggles and their perseverance. But, you know, I'm not going to lie. It's been a rough three years. I think immigration has been the forefront of what the administration's doing. And there's literally every month a fundamental change to immigration policy. And so that's why we've been in court so often in the last three years. We've been in court extremely often, but the case that's coming up is a bit different. It's a Supreme Court argument. You've had one before. Yes. But these are big deal by any measure. We'll get to the details of the case, but I wonder if you can fill us in on your preparation strategy. How are you approaching this argument in the next few days? Yeah, so I think I've been prepping the way most people prep for a Supreme Court argument, which is to read all the background materials again, but then to do a lot of moot courts, practice arguments. Mm -hmm. um, and what you try and do is find people who have experience in the Supreme Court, as well as other people who may bring something to it and have as many fresh perspectives as possible. I mean, ideally, you try and hear as many different questions as you can figure out what your answers are. There's never going to be perfect answers to everything. The nature of a case that gets to the Supreme Court is that both sides probably have decent arguments. Otherwise, it wouldn't get to the Supreme Court. So I think moot courting is the probably the most important thing I'm doing. Well, I joined the ACLU about 18 months ago, and the legend of League Alert had already become <laughs> enormous by that point. So I've heard stories, many of which you'll probably deny, including forgotten socks, uh, diets entirely consisting of candy and soda. So I understand under normal circumstances, you can be a colorful character. But I'm wondering, under these high-pressure situations of SCOTUS, are there any unconventional approaches that you're taking to this prep? I don't think that I will be taking any unconventional approaches <laughs> in the Supreme Court. And in fairness to me, the sock story was that when we filed the suit for family separation and went out there, we thought it was going to be a one-day hearing. And so I booked a red eye to come home to make sure I was home to see my kids. And the judge said, no, I want you back in court tomorrow. And then again in two days. And again. And each time I had to go and buy more socks and underwear, and I ended up staying in San Diego for 12 days and changing my flight six times. But um, So I am not that disorganized. The diet has been a problem the last three years. 
Well, the case that we're talking about is the Department of Homeland Security versus Thurasingham. It's a somewhat complicated case, but I think we want to lay out a few fundamental principles before we get into the details. Right. There are three key issues that I want to just lay out. One is, what is asylum, expedited removal, and habeas corpus? Yeah, so I think you're right to say that it's technically a complicated case, but there are very important principles at a sort of very basic level that people should understand. And so I think you've touched on three of the things that will be at issue in the case. Asylum is the protection we give to people fleeing persecution in their home countries on the basis of, for example, religion, political opinion, race. And so what we have said as a country is after World War II, when we turned our back on people coming here, we will never again turn our back on people. And it doesn't mean everyone gets asylum, but what we have said is people need to get fair process, at least the ability to apply for asylum and not simply be turned around and sent back to what could ultimately be a death sentence. And when we talk about asylum, we know that there are so many headlines around immigration these days. It's hard to keep everything straight. But we're not talking about economic migrants. We're not talking about chain migration. We're talking specifically about people who are fleeing dangerous circumstances. That's exactly right. There are people who come for other reasons, but these are people who are specifically fleeing dangerous circumstances. So that's asylum, a key principle here. Another one that we need to understand is expedited removal. What is expedited removal? So expedited removal is the process now, it's sort of a fast-track deportation system, and it applies even to people seeking asylum. They no longer get full hearings before an immigration judge, followed by appeals. They're put into this fast-track system in which they get a very brief interview with an asylum officer, almost always without anybody present, much less a lawyer. And then they get a very brief review from an immigration judge. There's not an appeal to a board. There's not full federal court review. And that's what we're challenging is that for an asylum seeker, that's not enough. For any immigrant being kicked out of the country, they have to have the right to go to a neutral federal court. And that's where your third question comes in, habeas corpus. Habeas corpus is a fancy term, a Latin term, that simply means if the government is going to take custody of you, they have to allow you to go to a neutral federal court and have the court review whether the deprivation of your liberty is consistent with law. So what it simply means, and that's what this case is about, is instead of the process beginning and ending with this expedited removal fast-track deportation process, some federal judge at some point needs to be able to review what's going on to make sure the executive branch is staying within the limits of the law. The government in this case is saying no federal court can look at his case that whatever the asylum officer and immigration judge say, that goes no matter how blatant the mistake. So even if asylum officers are denying asylum based on race, expressly doing it, or denying people a translator who don't speak English, even though the statute requires that, or even denying them a hearing altogether, we could not go to court to correct that. You know, what I think is important for people to understand is that they may often say, well, they saw an asylum officer or they saw an immigration judge. Why do they need to see a federal judge? And the difference is that a federal judge is appointed for life, has life tenure, and can stay above the fray of politics, and no one can order the federal judge to do anything. 
the difference is with an asylum officer and an immigration judge, they are part of the executive branch. And so they are directly supervised by people in the executive branch. They don't have life tenure. And that, you know, what the framers of our constitution thought was critical is to have three separate branches and to have the federal judges be non-political and look at cases and not be beholden to any particular administration. And the ironic thing about taking away a day in court for immigrants is when you talk to a lot of immigrants, what they tell you about what they love about America is that you can see a neutral judge, that they're coming from countries where that's unheard of, where the, the government may be prosecuting you and standing in as judge, that there's no such thing as a neutral judge. And that's one of the things they highlight about what they love about America. And they feel it at a real gut level because they've come from countries where there's no neutral judge looking at what's going on. Well, clearly there are big issues at play, but I wonder if we can just zero in on the specific situation of our clients in this case. You mentioned people coming from all sorts of countries where they're at risk. Mr. Thrasingham is from Sri Lanka, but he's a member of the Tamil ethnic minority. Can you tell us a little bit about how he found himself in such a pivotal case before the Supreme Court? Yeah. So right now, I think most people know that the asylum seekers who are coming here are are in significant measure from Central America, and that's understandable given what's going on, the violence and persecution in those countries. But he is coming from Sri Lanka, and he, as you said, is a member of a political minority group that has been persecuted for many, many years. He was picked up at work. Men came in a van, grabbed him, blindfolded him, pulled him in the van, beat him senseless, tortured him, interrogated him. He ended up in the hospital. When he finally woke up conscious, he barely you know, could put his life together. And he ultimately escaped and got to the United States and applied for asylum. And what the asylum officer said is, I believe all this happened to you, but I don't think you made out the legal requirements for asylum because they asked him, what were the names of the men who abducted you? And of mm. course, he didn't know the names. Mm. But what the law requires the asylum officers to do is look at the circumstantial evidence. Um, you know, one of the things I think every lawyer learns and I, as you get into a case, you learn about the case and you try and sort of really understand what your client's gone through. And before I got started with this case, we heard that he was picked up in a van and that that was a particular phenomena. And then we heard that they were probably white vans. And so people would say to me, well, every country has white vans. What's the big deal about it? But it became clear that that's the exact way in which government forces come and get Tamils in unmarked white vans to the point where we found that when we started looking, tons of reports about the white van phenomena. And then I said, well, you know, is it really that big a deal? And one night I was flipping channels and I came upon an Anthony Bourdain show where he was in Sri Lanka. And he, although it's a food travel show for people who don't know, he actually focused on the white van phenomena and talked to people there and people told him about when the white van comes and picks people up, that's danger. And so it was to the point where it even spread into sort of popular culture. And then we began to realize, well, this asylum officer who's charged with knowing what's going on in these countries should have understood that 
when our client was picked up in a van, should have asked him, well, was it a white van? Because our client didn't know to volunteer that information. We have worked it into our brief, and we have also had friend of the court briefs filed, amicus briefs from Sri Lankan experts who talk about how what happened to Mr. Thurassingham was exactly what happens to other Tamils. And yet the asylum officer said, well, I don't really know what happened to you. It could have been anything. And so he faulted our client for not coming forward with the names. But the question of the Supreme Court will not be whether the asylum officer erred in not finding him ready to apply for asylum. It'll simply be, can a federal court look at this issue? And we are simply saying, look, given the circumstances, a federal court has to be able to look at this issue. Now, ultimately, we could lose on the merits. We hope not. A federal court could say, no, he didn't make out his case for the screening standard for asylum. But we think once we get before a federal judge, the federal judge will see it our way. But the whole fight in the Supreme Court now is just for us to be able to see a federal judge. The government wants to be able to deport people immediately based on these administrative officials say so without any federal judge looking at what's going on. It's a dramatic illustration of why we need judicial review. If somebody is being denied asylum because they can't identify the hooded figures who abducted them in the night— It begs the question, where is the client now? Where is he physically at this moment? So he spent two years in detention in San Diego. That was a very rough two years. Two years in detention is rough no matter what. It was particularly rough for him because no one spoke his language. Mm. So he really was essentially in isolation for two years. We finally have got him released. He's on an ankle bracelet and all those types of things. But we finally got him released He is out now on bond. If he loses in the Supreme Court, if we lose his case in the Supreme Court, he is going to be in real trouble. So hopefully we prevail. There's a lot at stake, not just for him, whose life, you know, could be in real danger sent back to Sri Lanka. But the case, as as you all know, Supreme Court doesn't take cases just to resolve one person's situation. The principle that the Supreme Court will be asked to decide is whether asylum seekers— are entitled to their day in court. And so if he prevails, then other asylum seekers who believe that they were wronged in their asylum hearings can go to see a federal court. Most people will probably accept what the asylum officer did, but some people like Mr. Thrasingham will believe that they clearly have an asylum claim and will seek federal court review. We argue that everybody has the right to that day in court. Habeas corpus, there's no exception for asylum seekers. What is the government's argument in this case? The government has made a variety of arguments. One argument they've made is that you're not entitled to your day in court if you don't have, quote unquote, meaningful ties to the United States. Hmm. And what we have responded is that habeas corpus was meant to apply to everyone on U.S. soil. And it's a check on the government itself. So the government can't then start excluding people because it's like, no, we don't want that check on ourselves, so we're going to start saying this person does have meaningful ties, this person doesn't have meaningful ties. So that's one argument, and we don't think it's correct historically. The other argument they've made is that, well, we're not throwing him into detention. We're simply taking his body and sending him to Sri Lanka, and that's not really what habeas corpus was designed to do. It was only designed if we're going to be throwing you into detention and not letting you out. And what we've pointed to is historic materials and the Supreme Court's own cases that says habeas corpus applies where the government is trying to physically 
deport you. And there's no question he will be taken into custody. He will be brought back into detention. He's already spent two years. He'll be brought back into detention, handcuffed, and physically taken out of the country and sent to Sri Lanka. So the government's made a variety of arguments. At the end of the day, they've also tried to suggest to the court that we just can't provide habeas corpus. And I want to emphasize that this would be the first time in the history of the country if the government prevails that the United States Supreme Court is saying someone can be deported from U.S. soil without their day in court, without habeas corpus. And what the government's suggesting is, well, look how many people are seeking asylum. It's just not feasible to provide habeas corpus. We think they're overstating the burden of how many habeas corpus petitions there would be. But ultimately, the framers of our Constitution decided habeas corpus is essential And the government cannot say, we just think it's burdensome to provide it. It's a check on the government. The government can't say, whenever they feel like it's a burden, we're going to eliminate habeas corpus. There's no question in our mind that the government's overstating the burden. But regardless, the framers thought this was indispensable. We cannot take people's liberty away without giving them a chance to go to federal court. As I mentioned, the attacks on immigration have been dizzying. As you said, every week there's a new attack on immigration and immigrants' rights. But there seems to be a particular focus on dismantling the asylum system. And as you mentioned, this case is in some ways procedural. It's about whether you can get your day in court, whatever the outcome of that day might be. But we have to understand it in the context of this administration's effort to sort of dismantle every piece of the asylum process. I think you're exactly right that what the administration is doing is, I mean, they're, they're focusing on a lot of things, but I think asylum at the border has been their principal focus. But, you know, unfortunately, and I think it goes from, you know, in the area of immigration, that Democratic and Republican presidents have not always been great on immigration. I mean, that's not to say that this administration has not gone well beyond what any other Democratic or Republican administration has done, especially with family separation. I mean, that is the worst thing I've seen in my almost three decades doing this work. So we'll have to see how the justice react. Hopefully, there's a perspective of we, the Supreme Court, have always kept habeas corpus in place. No matter what else we've allowed the government to do in the immigration area, the one thing we've never allowed be taken away is habeas corpus. Because once you can't see a federal court, then anything can happen. And I think that's the real danger now during the Trump administration is that even these truncated fast-track asylum proceedings are becoming even more fast-track and even more errors are being made. So the need for federal court review during the Trump administration, I think, is that much greater. And so the stakes are that much greater. The stakes are obviously high for asylum seekers who are fleeing persecution, but are there stakes also for others? What's at stake in terms of habeas corpus more generally? Yeah, that's a very good question. I think that the stakes are extremely high because it's really the rule of law that's at play here. You know, as I said, the Supreme Court has never allowed someone to be deprived of their liberty on U.S. soil without habeas corpus, without access to a federal court. And that's even Guantanamo. And they even extended that to Guantanamo. You're absolutely right. And so that's whether you're a non citizen or a citizen. So There is historic implications to this, but I also think for habeas corpus, there's enormous doctrinal implications because what the framers of our Constitution said was 
habeas corpus may only be suspended when it's formally suspended and only then in cases of invasion or rebellion. If the Supreme Court now allows it to be eroded without meeting the requirements in the Constitution of formal suspension and a declaration of an invasion or rebellion, I think we're then down the path of looking at habeas corpus being eroded in one area after another with the government walking into court and saying, well, look at this precedent in Thursingham. You you allowed it to be this habeas corpus to be balanced away for expediency then. Well, we have an equally important uh, objective in getting rid of habeas corpus. And I think that's what the framers were concerned about. So that's what I think is at stake here. We'll be watching this case quite closely. We'll be looking forward to hearing your argument in the eventual decision by the court. But I couldn't have you in here. You mentioned that family separation is something that stands out in your long career. Uh, And it's something I know that you've devoted an extraordinary amount of time to, lots of trips to Central America, working with coalition partners and colleagues to reunite families really one by one. Uh, And I wonder if you can update us on where family reunification stands at this moment as a part of this broader effort to protect immigrants' rights from this daily, weekly onslaught. Yeah, so I think one of the things the public probably doesn't know is that Family separation is ongoing. And there was an enormous public outcry in the summer of 2018 when we brought the lawsuit. And that public outcry was critical for the court case and both for stopping the administration from continuing that policy and other policies. And I think the focus has understandably gone to other things. But family separation is very much an ongoing issue for us in in two ways. One is that At the initial lawsuit, it was revealed that there were roughly 3,000 families that had been separated. Mm -hmm. We later learned, and the government never told us, the court, Congress, or the public, that there were another 1,500 children who had been separated. We've only recently learned about those children. We only have very sketchy contact information. So we are searching all over Central America and all over the world as necessary, looking for those families. And that's an enormous task we're undertaking with our NGO partners and and law firms helping pro bono. But that part is ongoing. The other part that's ongoing is the administration continues, notwithstanding the injunction we got in court, to separate families on the ground that they are claiming that individual parents are a danger to their child. We found out, though, that it could be the parent committed a theft offense, a nonviolent theft offense, 10 years ago for a few hundred dollars, and the government's claiming, well, the parent could be a danger to their child. So that's a real problem and an ongoing problem we are working on. But I do hope that the public continues to ask about family separation, continues to speak out, because people need to realize that when the ACLU goes to court, that's one part of the solution, hopefully. But any real civil rights change is going to come from a combination of litigation and public outcry. And I think the public outcry we saw in the summer of 2018 was the closest I've seen, at least, to a real civil rights moment while I've been at the ACLU, where people took to the streets and said, we will not stand for this. And it wasn't just Democrats and liberals. It was Republicans and conservatives said, enough is enough. We're not going to continue in the United States taking a small baby away from their parents. I hope that the public realizes it's still ongoing and continues to push for change, you know, and understandably, 
there's a lot going on. There's an election. There's, you know, people have their lives to lead. But I do think family separation is one of those things that's worth people coming out and, and really protesting about. For me, I think the only way I'm able to get some hope in this area is remembering that in our history as a country, we've had periods of closure and periods of openness. And quite clearly, we're in a period of closure, but we can only hope that it may lead to another period of openness and rights-respecting legal system that we hope to see. Do you have any hope that we can get back to a, not just playing defense, but also pushing immigration laws in a direction that we'd like to see? Yeah, I mean, I think what's interesting about immigration, you know, is historically it has been cyclical and we've had periods of up and down. But I, I would say more generally, I always remain hopeful. I, I think... Um, it's hard to do this work hmm. if you're not hopeful and optimistic. And so I feel like I have no choice but to, you know, I don't know whether that I'm evading your question, but <laughs> that's where I am at this moment in my life. Well, Lee, you have so much to do with your clients, with your upcoming Supreme Court argument. We really appreciate you taking the time to come into the studio. We admire your work and we really appreciate your time. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks very much for listening. If you enjoyed this conversation, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We really appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace. Peace.